Hello, friends, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Evergreen Way podcast. My name is Andy Needham, and I have the privilege of serving on the team with Converge Northeast. We are excited to bring you these conversations about leader health. What does it mean to be someone who serves the kingdom of God for the long haul, faithful and fruitful? This idea of the evergreen way is rooted in scripture. You hear this kind of language in Psalm 1 and also Jeremiah 17, which I'll read from here. Jeremiah 17, 7 says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. That is the way that we believe that God has called us to live in him. And the truth is that sometimes we focus so much on what it means to be leaders of people that we forget that first God has called us to be disciples, not just to make disciples, which is our mission, but to be disciples, to be apprentice of Jesus, to walk in his ways every day. And so as we have these conversations with dear friends, some of these incredible leaders who lead amazing organizations, we're always going to skew towards the heart. We want to talk about these principles, spiritual formation in us. How do we follow Jesus? Effective communication. How are we navigating the nuance of this peculiar moment in history where we get to speak and lead? We'll talk about leadership, but we'll talk about leadership from a kingdom perspective. What does it mean to be a kingdom leader? Not to build our kingdoms, but to build God's kingdom. And all of this, I believe, lives within the framework of community, of relationship, what we'll call spiritual friendship. Too many pastors, too many ministry leaders are living in a relational island. We're calling people to small groups. We're telling them to come to church, to bring their friends, to bring their neighbors, and yet we don't often think about our own circle of friends. And so we'll talk about those things. And so I'm going to bring to you the conversations that I love and get to have as I engage with leaders all over the Northeast and beyond. These are conversations that have been happening in coffee shops and church offices and all kinds of different spaces. And now some of them get to be shared with you. And to kick things off, I could think of no one better to invite on then my friend, Dave Ripper. Dave is the lead pastor of Crossway Christian Church. They have locations in Nashua and Milford, New Hampshire. And Dave has been a friend here in the Northeast for about a decade. And uh, we have always connected over kingdom thoughts and especially ideas around spiritual formation. And about a year ago, Dave and I started having these conversations. And this word evergreen was percolating for me. And we gathered Dave, myself, and another friend, Doug Melder, Dave actually introduced me to Doug and we went on a winter hike. I'd never been on a winter hike in the White Mountains, but I got the special foot gear and we went off on a hike and we get to have a long conversation and dream and think. And we spent some time together uh, in the, in the White Mountains. And through that time, this idea of the evergreen way took shape in some new ways. First, we did a one day gathering and we gathered about 70 different leaders from churches in the Northeast just to engage in these very conversations. And then we launched the Evergreen Way cohort. And we're actually about halfway through a one year, a nine month journey with eight early to mid career leaders here in the Northeast. We hiked together again in the White Mountains. It wasn't the winter, but we went up, we actually summited two 4,000 foot mountains here in New Hampshire. For some of them, that was the first time they'd ever hiked any mountain. So it was quite a memory maker. And then we've been meeting monthly and exploring these different principles around formation, communication, leadership, and friendship. And I just didn't want to keep those ideas to ourselves. And so here, this podcast is one way to just continue to bring these conversations to a wider audience to engage you wherever you may be today. And we want to help you and encourage you. Let us know how this goes. Please do follow us or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to podcasts. Give us a review. Let us know what you think. Send me a message. There'll be information in the show notes on how you can connect with us. Thanks for joining. Thanks for tuning in. We have some great conversations coming in the coming week. But right now, 
I want to jump right into my conversation with my dear friend, Dave Ripper. I'm so honored to be here today with my longtime friend, Dave Ripper, now from the greater Nashua area. Dunstable, I think, is home for you, Dave. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Andy. Great to join you here for the Evergreen Podcast, man. Yeah, great to be with you. Well, it's been a privilege to uh, be able to interact with you over the years in different ministry contexts, and we'll talk a little later about what we get to do with this cohort and the formation of it. But can you, uh, for those who don't know you, give a little uh, snapshot of where where you're living and leading today? Yeah, for the last uh, four years, I've been the lead pastor of Crossway Christian Church, which is in Nashua, New Hampshire. We have a couple locations there and then one in Milford, New Hampshire, as well as online like everybody these days. And uh, the last, I think, what now, almost eight seasons, I've been the chaplain of the Boston Bruins as well. So that's been a fun, unexpected kind of ministry role. And uh, those are kind of my two big things and finishing up a doctoral degree from Fuller Seminary in the Dallas Willard Center right now. So I'll wrap that up in the this, this summer. And uh, yeah, just loving doing ministry in New England now, almost a dozen years that we've been here and glad our paths crossed early on in that process too, Andy. Yeah, we've often been trying to find excuses to do things together. So thanks for doing this with us today. But how did you end up? I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, and, a little outside uh, of Pittsburgh, yeah, and a few stops along the way, and then eventually New England now, as you said, for a good long season. So what were some of the uh, key milestones in that journey uh, that kind of formed you in ministry and um, have kind of equipped you to, to pastor? Yeah, I got the call to ministry even before I was a Christian. Uh, I was 13 years old, and my, my grandmother had just died from Alzheimer's, and my grandfather got sent into this rehab center right after that. And while I was there visiting him, it was just devastating to see a lot of the suffering around there. But there was a gentleman that uh, never had any guests, no visitors. And I, for the first time, really heard what I thought was like the voice of God telling me, Dave, you need to go over and talk to this man. And I'm like 13. I'm like, I don't listen to strange voices, not going to do it. But it was this undeniable sense I could not shake. And so finally, I worked with the courage to just go say hello to this man. And, and I did. And he just lit up. And it was, he couldn't talk. But it was just clear. It felt like a, a moment unlike any other moment I'd ever had before. And so I started wondering, what, I want to do something like that with my life. And what should I do that could could help me do that? And uh, suddenly this radical voice came back in my mind said, you should be a pastor. I said, there's a huge issue with that. You kind of need to be a Christian to be a pastor. I was not there yet, had zero interest in that. Uh, when I was in you know, eighth grade, that next year I got like 36 attentions. So not the kind of candidate uh, for pastoral ministry, but God kind of got a hold of me and got a chance to preach my first sermon when I was 15 at this little church across the street from my house where uh, my parents attended a little Presbyterian church. I ended up actually being the groundskeeper there uh, starting when I was 13. So cutting the grass and uh, doing a lot of other stuff on the side. But technically, I have been working for the church for you know, over 25 years now, if you count that time when I was cutting a couple acres worth of, worth of grass. And, and just from there, God kept uh, leading me one step at a time, went to college, Grove City College in Western PA. And then after we got graduated, got married, went to Denver Seminary out in Colorado. And, and there I met uh, Gordon McDonald, who was the longtime pastor at Grace Chapel. And then uh, Brian Wilkerson, who was the current pastor there, they both graduated from Denver Seminary. And both those guys kind of uh, cast a vision for ministry in New England that, oddly enough, out in Colorado kind of got, got a hold of me. And so had an opportunity to come and, and work for Grace for about eight years, uh, from 2011 to 2019. And uh, just really grateful for those years and grateful for the chapter of ministry I'm in right now. That's great. Um, speaking of Gordon McDonald, um, he continues to play a, a role in your life today. And um, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about you and appreciated and try to emulate in my own life is um, just the pursuit and the cultivation of uh, spiritual fathers in your life, those who've gone before you in ministry. And and what do you, um, what does that look like in your journey? And, um, you know, it may be something that's sort of natural to you, but like, what has been the benefit of that? And what is that, you know, kind of that journey of having, pursuing, investing in relationships with, with those who've gone before us in ministry been like for you? 
Yeah, I think it's a really important spiritual practice for me where I'm a very experiential learner and they kind of say more is, you know, caught than taught and something about being around other people that I just admire and respect. I feel like I do glean things that help form and shape my character and ministry significantly. So I've never been a big fan of like conferences, but I love conversations. So I, I have in the past, you know, actively pursued meeting some of the people that I've admired from a distance. Like, you know, we went to Montana to stay, spend a day with Eugene Peterson in his house, which was just kind of a whole different story. But uh, other people have actually, I just feel very blessed that they've pursued me. And, and Gordon has actually been one of those people that have really reached out to me as much as I kind of pursued him. And he was the interim president at Denver my second year there. And uh, we got to go through uh, Ordering Your Private World, kind of his classic book uh, on just life and the inner life and how that relates to ministry and, and so many other things. And I just learned very quickly, Gordon was the most reflective person I had ever met. He asked the best questions. He spends time to kind of know the way forward. Uh, he looks backward to kind of determine those steps. And, you know, there were so many things from just the practical things that he taught that I, I gleaned from. One of those key ideas when he was talking about ordering your private world was about scheduling. And uh, he would say, you got to just protect your schedule for what matters most. And the way to do that is to just plan time when you're going to spend time with your spouse or you're not going to see other people. And then when people try and get that time and ask you, can you hang out? Are you free? You can just you know, share this classic Gordon McDonald line. I'm sorry, my schedule does not permit it. And, uh, and most, more times than not, nobody asks you, well, why does your schedule not permit it? You know, a few people are audacious enough to do that. But, you know, so I'd say Gordon and I lost touch a little bit. Uh, but by the time I finished seminary, he kind of went back, back east. And uh, he's you know, been in, in the New England area for a lot of years, though. But uh, during some of my last years at Grace, he, he actually reached out to me and watched some of my sermons and just invited me to come to his home. And uh, and so my wife and I did that. And that was just a real gift to spend time with him and Gail. And, and we just continued that. He leads a little pastor's group now that meets every Monday. And we're talking about life and ministry. But I think one of the things that Gordon has been so influential for me is just, you know, seeing things in me that I might not see in myself and, and kind of call that out and almost speak that into me. And I think that's something I've really tried to learn and emulate and practice with others. You know, what do I, what, uh, what do I see in other people they might not see in themselves to kind of draw out maybe some of that latent ministry potential, but, but it is an important practice to carve out time to, you know, I think sometimes just to, especially people who you might admire from a distance in writing, you know, people love to receive that letter or that email that just says how much something has made a difference. And sometimes if you don't make the ask or request, you, you probably won't get to have those encounters. But I've been grateful enough that there have been, been people like Gordon or others that have said, sure, I would love to get some time with you if you want to pursue that. So. That's an important practice for me. I would just encourage anybody, rather than maybe a conference, who's who's a person you would like to spend maybe an afternoon with? And more likely than not, I think that person would probably love to get on your calendar. That's a great, uh, great piece of counsel. And it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody with a large platform or who has been prolific. Um, I think there's... Yeah. There's more people within reach that than we probably, if we were, like you said, had the intentionality yeah. to really kind of process that. Um, it's a great practice. And um, yeah, I love, love that so, so much. And um, who has impacted your view of what it means to be a pastor? Because um, uh, I, I think of you, I mean, I know you're, you're very sharp academically. I, I mean, I'll just, you know, compliment you all day long so you can feel good about yourself, but, uh, you're a good communicator. Um, but I just feel like, um, there's a resonance, um, when I think about you as pastor shepherd, mm. um, who has kind of helped forge your sort of framework for what it means to pastor. Hmm. You know, I, I would say probably my first youth pastor, a guy named Sam DeMarco, he 
he really has a spirit akin to like Louis Giglio, I would say. When I hear those guys speak, you know, Sam never got the same platform, but that same kind of heartbeat, uh, but just investment. But, you know, so I, I, I was really fortunate, I think, to have some wonderful pastors throughout my life where you just kind of model that. But a lot of Eugene Peterson's books probably were the thing that shaped me most, his books like The Contemplative Pastor. And I think he really tried to help people do ministry subversively. You know, he's growing up and, and ministering right at the time when you know, the mega church is really exploding. And uh, not that you know business principles can't be really important for, for church leaders, but I think in many ways, those type of outward metrics, measurements, outward success, size, buildings, budgets, you know, bums in the seats became like the end all be all. And in some ways, that kind of hijacked the historic vocational calling of pastor. And, and Peterson kind of stood as a voice crying out in the wilderness. Uh, you don't have to do it this way. And here is what this you know, ancient vocation is, somebody who is like a care, carer of souls, a curer of souls has, has done. So I think he really showed that you know, being with God is the primary responsibility first of any good pastor. You can be unhurried, unbusy as a pastor. And uh, those are things I just, you know, learned a lot from him uh, in those ways. So his memoir, The Pastor, is just absolutely fantastic. And then Wynn Collier recently released a biography on Peterson. Uh, it's called A Burning in My Bones, kind of based on uh, his translation of one of Jeremiah's great prophetic words. And I loved that because that biography gives access into Peterson in ways that just brings him down to life. Some of Peterson's books, he'll talk about how he would plan in his calendar to read Dostoevsky on Thursdays from 2 to 4 p.m. And he read through all those <laughs> Russian novels that are so dense. I'm like, that is, I will never, ever reach that kind of echelon. Maybe nor should I, but in this, uh, in this biography, you know, he, he talks about some of the ways that Peterson struggled with things like Peterson struggled with over drinking bourbon. And that was a coping mechanism for him. And he refused to have a television in his house because he was asked, why would I let that poison into my life? But, you know, he had other struggles, too. So but I think he was probably one of those model kind of pastors. And I would say that contemplative pastoring approach has been huge, you know, for, for how I've tried to do ministry too. And I certainly gleaned a lot from business leaders and leadership models and try and implement that strategy, but, uh, to do so in a way that is formative for my character and not just, uh, you know, ministry can be very deformative for a lot of people. And so many of the folks that seem to be deconstructing their faith are often people that worked in the church these days. And, I think they maybe not only had the wrong expectations, but maybe the wrong vision for what ministry could and should look like. Yeah, I can't recommend the uh, that biography. I read that this last year. It's really well written. It's a very engaging book, and um, and that's definitely a great um, overview of his life. So that's a great. <clears throat> I similarly. Um, yeah, just having leaders that we can look up to that have such um, accessibility in their humanity. Um, thought that was a really a beautiful thing. So. Uh, speaking of humanity, uh, you wrote a book, your first book with a friend, Paul Borthwick, and um, yeah. not necessarily the topic that most people would choose for their their first uh, author uh, kind of quest here. Uh, and the, the title of the book is The Fellowship of the Suffering, How Suffering Shapes Us for Ministry and Mission. And I love how you and Paul share your stories through that book. It's a great book. Um, yeah. And tell me a little bit, though, like, why would that be the first book that you would write? Like, why would that be the starting point? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the truth be told, because Paul told me I should. Uh, if you don't know Paul, he's a missiologist. He's ministered in about 120 plus countries. And, uh, you know, I'd gone through some pretty difficult just seasons of life and ministry. I found it harder than, you know, to be expected. And even when we were actually speaking of Peterson, out in Montana, you know, my wife is a therapist and, uh, you know, pastor's wife was just asking the Petersons, both Eugene and Jan, you know, sharing how, how, how misunderstood and how lonely just ministry really can be. Even though we are surrounded with great people, we feel really loved. There's very few people to kind of get us. And, and after a long pause, after Aaron asked the question, you know, Eugene kind of just leaned across the table and just said, suffering comes with the territory of ministry. Loneliness comes with the territory. And 
I'd never heard anybody say anything like that. You know, I've gone to seminary and never heard the slightest message around that. And it was actually like really good news. It was like, oh, yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. And, and so that gave a lot of uh, validation, I think, to some of the feelings that we almost felt were wrong that we were having around ministry. It's like if it was hurting, it felt like we were doing it wrong. And then you start to read a lot of Paul's letters of, you know, first or Colossians 1, 28 to 29, you know, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might, pro, uh, we might help everyone become fully mature in Christ. And then Paul says, for this I toil and struggle with all of his energy that he worked so powerfully through me. So there's that side of it. And I think we really went through some tough stretches. You know, really blessed to have three three kids, uh, six, four, and two. But we tried to start our family via adoption. And you know, we really wanted to kind of use our family to try and, you know, be an answer to some of the biggest challenges that you know, other people have faced. And adoption, especially a decade plus ago, was a lot of... Uh, people were telling Christian couples is a really important thing to do, and uh, it still is. Uh, we bought into that, tried tried adopting older older children, and unfortunately, for a lot of reasons, it, that was not meant to be. And I think we hopefully uh, hopefully help those kids be in the right place and posture in life, but that was not to be with us. That still was just a devastating experience, and. And it was devastating in a lot of ways where it seemed like we did what God called us to do. And in doing what God called us to do, somehow it was not meant to, to work out and wrestling with a lot of those big questions. And as I kind of journeyed through a lot of that, I started to read the Bible differently. I just started to see how suffering was on every page. And suddenly it started to make a lot more sense for me. And ended up giving a, a message at Grace Chapel, uh, kind of based on Peterson's phrase, suffering comes with the territory. And Paul Borthwick uh, was in the in the, uh, the crowd that day in the congregation and came down and was like, you, that's your book. You need to write this. And it's like, ah, not that interested in it. I don't, what, what does a 32 year old really 31 year old know about suffering uh, to that degree? But he shared a whole lot about how, you know, God really advances ministry through suffering. And as I heard Paul talk about it, I thought, you know what, if he wants to write this with me, then I'll maybe do it. I mean, he does have like a publishing, you know, agent and it'll actually go into print uh, and yes. maybe be read by a few people other than my mother if I write it with, you know, Paul. And uh, and so, yeah, we went on that journey together. And the book is based on Philippians 3.10, which says, um, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his suffering. And we often just leave it, you know, we kind of crochet, I want to know Christ, dot, dot, dot. You know, you can find all kind of Hobby Lobby stuff with Philippians 3.10, but, you know, rest of verse 10 and verse 11 say, and the sharing of his sufferings or the fellowship of his suffering. And uh, the title kind of became a little play on words from the Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring, the fellowship of the suffering as well. But I think our hope is to help people have a realistic expectation of what ministry is. It's Paul even calls Timothy in one place, you know, to share in the ministry of suffering, you know, share in this suffering with me. And so when we're stepping into this, it's not just about success and everything going well. It's going to mean we're going to inevitably, and I think it, go through hard times and those hard times, those struggles, that loneliness, that sense of feeling rejection. And a lot of us felt this like never before through the pandemic comes with the territory. It's validation we're on the right path and and there's so much redemptive power i think as we suffer with god in the work of ministry and so the big question that we kind of asked throughout the book and you're putting me on the test here this came out like four years ago now so i haven't talked about it that much recently but uh is you know what is God's unexpected invitation to the unwanted suffering that we have in our lives? Is there an unexpected invitation? And I would say that is to deeper fellowship with God, closer fellowship with others. And ultimately, I think God uses how we suffer to empower us for the greater mission and ministry that he would have for us ultimately. So we felt like that is a message not enough people are hearing that needs to be said. And uh, Grateful InterVarsity Press you know, helped make that happen. 
Yeah, I didn't mean to quiz you too hard, but I think it, <laughs> I think it's such a critical. I mean, one you could there's a whole side of it which the book does well. It's for anyone who's a Christ follower, the side of our faith where we're not trying to like lower the bar as low as we can on what Christianity is, and you know, yeah. what does it mean to take up our cross? What does it mean to in, embrace the sufferings of Christ? I do think also as ministry leaders, though, it's really important because we might, you know, intellectually understand that and grasp that, but then our practical living theology, when things don't go right or we don't hit the milestone that we want to hit in the time that we want, or somebody turns against us or whatever, you know, whatever suffering looks like in our world or our homes or whatever that is, um, you know, there's so many points. When you start to flip that lens and really look at scripture, you see many times, you know, Jesus sends the disciples in a boat before they, the healing of the demoniac, the, when he calms the sea, Jesus sent them in the boat into the storm and there's, you know, obedience led them into hardship and, that is often the way of the kingdom, and it's a it's a hard thing for us to reckon with. But I think when we talk about and think about the amount of disillusionment that you mentioned, deconstruction that happens of people in practice, practicing ministry, if we get off uncalibrated in that area, it's a very easy place for the enemy to be able to exploit for us. So, absolutely, yeah, yeah it's so well said, Andy. Yeah, yeah. I think there's so, another quote I'd seen too related to this. I wish we would have got this one in the book. And I don't know whoever said it, but it says, sometimes when you're in a dark place, you think you've been buried when you've really been planted. Ooh. Have you heard that before? Sometimes when you're in a dark place, you think you've been buried when you've really been planted. And I think that's a lot of what suffering in the Christian life is all about, planting to see what kind of seeds of resurrection we might get to experience. So to kind of pivot into your everyday walk with Christ today, what are some of the the rhythms that have been really critical for you? I'm not talking about sermon preparation or strategy for church. We could do that all day some other time. But in terms of Dave and Jesus, the dad, the husband, the child of God, what does that look like for you? Rhythms and then and rest. What, what do those things look like for you? Yeah, my rule of life is based on the character of God. And I love how Dallas Willard says in The Divine Conspiracy, God is the most joyous being in the universe. So I try and create a rule of life that is about promoting and entering into and sharing the joy that is at the heart of the Trinity. And so I think the way that can be done is through these characteristics of God, that God is communion. He's a relationship within himself. He's creative and he's compassionate. And so communion with God, creative work and kind of compassionate presence are three things that kind of overlapping circles, almost like a Venn diagram that shape my orientation toward God. So, you know, communion with God uh, is, is for me, you know, definitely a lot of scripture, prayer. I'm big into a lot of the Ignatius kind of practices of like the examine, of reflective kind of life, unhurried time with God. Um, you know, practicing Sabbath, as you kind of alluded, is, is something we, we try and do. It's definitely taken different iterations over the over the years when we didn't have kids. Boy, Fridays was like such a glorious day for my wife and I to play, pray, and rest, which I think is crucial to Sabbath, play and pray and, and get some good rest. You know, I still have Fridays largely. I do watch kids that day and uh, they don't stop needing being cared for just because it's Sabbath. So it's not quite as restful, but that's a day to really try and make it the kind of like unusual day, like staying off the the phone as much as I can, staying off websites that I would normally look at, read things I don't get to, spend a lot of time outdoors. Uh, That's really, really critical for me. Uh, One thing we talked about before is like, especially even on Sundays, you know, trying to make the afternoon a little bit more restful. And and for me, one of my key Sunday practices is to to sweat Sunday afternoon. And I kind of developed this after learning about this practice where or this study that showed when a pastor is most likely to commit some type of, you know, cardinal sin or look at porn or whatever that might be, the day of the week they're most likely to do that is actually Sunday evening. And the reason behind that is because after you get done speaking or preaching or leading, whatever that looks like, you're literally like experiencing the kind of like 
high you would if you were on some type of drug. And then you come off of that and you crash hard. You go from uh, a real kind of emotional high to like almost just hitting the ground. And at that low moment, you're much more vulnerable to any type of temptation and to recalibrate yourself sweating actually is a very physical thing you can do that kind of levels you back out. And so it's kind of a preemptive approach to resisting temptation, you know, going for a run, honestly doing manual labor on Sunday afternoons is one of the best things, you know, for me to do something very different from speaking and relating, doing something like, uh, you know, cutting grass or sometimes chopping wood or, you know, some kind of good Southern New Hampshire kind of activities are, are great things. Uh, that really is helpful. But, uh, you know, beyond that, um, you know, I, I, the, the practice of study is really important for me, getting out, hiking, being outside, you know, music. Uh, one of the things that's really lowered my anxiety, I would say, especially during the pandemic is I just kept my acoustic guitar readily available out of the case and just picking that up, you know, even just in like those moments where I might turn to my phone and just playing something or writing some kind of like silly song with my kids. It's just kind of lowered the anxiety and just been creative. And so I try and think a lot about how do I spend that communion with God? How can I do creative things with him, both in work and in play? And then how do I kind of be that compassionate presence uh, to give my attention very fully to the people that that I am with, uh, to listen really, really well to, you know, over the years, it's you know, listening to even people that are just different socioeconomic strata or things and building relationships like that are really indispensable practices for me. Uh, yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, I love the um, integration of mind, body, and soul, uh, which is how we're to love God um, in in that. And especially, again, I, I mentioned um, that Sunday afternoon practice because I think that that is a point where, you know, being self-reflective about where are those points of vulnerability yeah. um, that, you know, where our guard could be down and then finding practices that might be able to help us with that, you know, again, it could be mowing the lawn. Um, you know, that's just could be a spiritual practice in, in your yeah. life um, as part of that, which is, is really, really uh, beautiful. Another thing that I've um, observed with you, and um, I don't know if you do this exclusively, but oftentimes when we've had times where we've met, we've walked together or we've hiked together. And um, I, I think that's another way that, you know, even relationally when you're, it could be even in the workplace. And again, I'm sure for you, it's with some of your staff and things like that, but to be outdoors and to be active. And um, is that something that is a common practice in, in, in your rhythms or? Absolutely. You know, January, when we're recording, this makes it a little bit harder, but, uh, <laughs> but, but we do, you know, we still, we still hiked uh, Mount Chakura there in February or whatever that was last year. You know, going back to Gordon McDonald was fascinating to have him come and he's spoken at Crossway multiple times and he just kind of like sees my life in ministry. And one of the unique things we have on our property is a pond. Uh, that's, that's, you know, it's quite lovely. And, you know, Gordon just observed this and he said, ah, oh, this kind of spot under this you know, overhang from our building that looks over the pond, he would say, ah, you know, that would be my office. And I just kind of <laughs> learned that, you know what? And especially during the COVID period, that really became my office and how many outdoor meetings, how many walks, you know, that I have. And I think especially for guys, it's a lot less likely people are going to open up when we're just like staring eyeball to eyeball across the table. When you kind of get side by side doing something, it's just amazing how much more people's guards come down. And we want to share an experience together. And even with people that are seeking my counsel, you know, they really want a friendship and relationship with me more than they just want me to solve their problems. And so getting to do things like that are important. But, you know, even as we've done in like the ever, ever great experience, which we'll talk about, but like, when you get outside and hiking with somebody, sometimes it takes you know four or five hours of just doing something until like the real honest conversation, the things you really want to talk about and ask about, do we feel safe enough and just transparent enough to be able to really share? So those are really powerful moments, uh, mm. no doubt about it. Uh, yeah, so I, I want to talk about Evergreen in just a moment, but before we get to that, um, in the context of Crossway, um, you've created a, a unique environment um, for your congregation to engage in. Some of it's the overflow of your own study yeah. in spiritual formation and practice in Dallas Willard. 
but tell me what is Monday School? Where did this start? And it's a really interesting thing. And I think that other leaders could learn, if, not that they have to copy it, but the idea of creating these other environments for the, and the way that you do that would be really interesting to me. Yeah, I think Monday School kind of evolved both from a combination of Dallas Willard and, and actually Gordon. Uh, Dallas would say that church has spent so much of its time trying to get people into heaven and what would happen if instead we try to get heaven into people and he kind of cast the vision of if we got heaven into people in other words if the life of christ grew and matured in people more and more and more rather than preaching the kind of irreducible minimum that gets somebody you know into heaven out of hell but how how we could get the, the life of the trinity in people more and more that Christ-like character be their thing, that we would then see more and more people coming to faith. So maybe discipleship could be indirectly our most strategic evangelistic strategy. It was just going to take some time for that to occur. So this vision of getting heaven in the people. And then Gordon in his book, Going Deep, he talks a lot about how you know, typically when he thinks about making disciples, we only think of the context of the Sunday pulpit and maybe a small group. And there's many more avenues that we could be pursuing. And so what he ended up doing in his kind of latter years of pastoral ministry is devoted about 15% of his time to a small group of people to go through kind of a cohort experience with. And, and I think that's an idea that was tucked in my mind. And if I ever get in that position of lead pastor that I can pick what I want to do with my time, I want to invest in that. And so um, I think there's a gap, honestly, in our more simple church model of like Sundays, groups, serving, giving, and that's our full model of discipleship. Um, it's going to happen in those kind of four buckets. And so, you know, both Willard, both Gordon kind of inspired me to, you know, church-wise, we just don't have space to do like a Sunday school or adult uh, discipleship space in the in, on a Sunday. So it's not Sunday school, it's, it's, it's Monday school. And it really has been this environment that we look at the heart, the head, and the hands. Kind of a, uh, this is our second year of doing it. The sequence from kind of heart, which would be really spiritual formation, to head, theology, to hands, ministry, of, of going through uh, a real intentional curriculum for Christ-likeness. And I think in our first First year, we had roughly about 80 different people that went through it. Our second year, we've been up to about 120 different people. Uh, and it's just been transformative. Uh, the experience is it's kind of a combination of individual spiritual practice, where I'll invite people to times of silence and solitude uh, with others, but quiet, um, and other spiritual reflective practices. Um, there'll be a kind of lecture teaching time that I offer and then a lot of group experience for discussion. So it is small groups, but it's happening in this more curated environment. Uh, and so, you know, interesting, one of the things that Willard did, you know, he taught USC, you know, for 47 years in philosophy and he kind of moonlighted as a Sunday school teacher teaching these in-depth classes. And he did that for decades and his books kind of grew out of that. And so, that's kind of the approach I've, I've tried to take. And it takes, takes a lot of effort to do. It actually means I prepare less on Sundays so that I can do Mondays. But I have also found it helps me going back to shepherding, know people at a deeper level because I'm not just in a monologue and space. I'm in a dialogical kind of environment where I'll present, no doubt about it. There is monologue to it, but then there's Q&A times. There's all the conversations that can happen afterwards. So that formation, theology, ministry, training focus has kind of been the real core of the vision behind Monday School. Hopefully get heaven in the people one by one so that hopefully more and more people will get into heaven. Yeah, I think that the um, the opportunity that is before us as a church right now is a season of experimentation. And I think creating these other spaces outside of Sunday morning um, is just, I think that the the ground is fertile to try some things like this. Absolutely. And I just commend you guys. And I'm sure you're learning and refining as you go for sure. Um, but it's a great, um, there's a lot of fruit that I know has already come from that. Uh, yeah. Environment, so I think yeah. it's such a time to strengthen the church. You know, one book I had a lot of sympathy toward, and I think it, it, uh, I don't agree with all of it, but it was called the Benedict option came out several years ago. And it kind of historically talks about how Christianity was moving into the dark ages. And as the Roman empire fell, 
what was going to be left of the church? Like the church had kind of colluded with the Roman Empire after Constantine legalized Christianity. And now this kind of subversive movement became mainstream. And as it became mainstream, so prolific, it started to lose the real essence of what it was. And, you know, fortunately, God raised up somebody like Benedict of Nursa to have the wherewithal to realize if we don't get our own house in order a little bit right now, we're in danger of kind of losing this whole thing. Like the world is evangelizing us far better than we're evangelizing the world. And uh, we are in the world and we are of the world. Uh, And so he called for a strategic withdrawal for the church to say, we need to dedicate, redouble our efforts to kind of getting our own house in order to make sure we know what we believe. We know what it means to follow Jesus. And so this is in some ways, and it has felt a little inward. And that to some people is going to turn them off right away. But I think we're at a critical moment with you know, Christianity in America declining, the rise of nuns and nonverts uh, escalating. This is a time that we need to step back and kind of get our own house in order. So that's, in many ways, that heart. And I think the invitation, to your point, is to experiment with daring to make discipleship the core of what church mm-hmm. is all about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Discipleship really is not a program. It is the <laughs> the lifeblood of the church and you're creating it new spaces for that. Yeah, it is yeah. the mission. <laughs> so that's great. And, um, you know, this uh, conversation that we're having in podcast form is really an extension of a conversation that you and I have been having in, in some um, environments that we've been able to create for church leaders uh, under this idea of evergreen. I remember sitting down at Starbucks in Bedford and, and kind of just, uh, first of all, just catching up sort of post- or I don't know if we were post-pandemic yet, but we were sort of on the tail tail end of that, and um, you know, expressing my gratitude for your friendship and some of the things you've been teaching me and I've been learning, um, and it's it's been fun. We we brought you have drafted in another dear friend, Doug Melder, who is scheduled to be on the podcast in a couple of weeks, um, and together we kind of just started a conversation around what does it look like to engage these concepts of spiritual formation in people in ministry, especially those formative, maybe first decade, first decade and a half of ministry. And so we were able to do a conference that your church graciously hosted. Gordon McDonald was one of the presenters and we had about 70 people come and similarly gathered around tables and it was a mix of environments and that was great. And then we've been on this endeavor uh, this last year with uh, uh, eight leaders from the region. It's been, you know, we're about halfway through, so we're still learning and, and as we go along, but we've been able to walk alongside this group of guys. And so, yeah, one, thank you for being a part of that. It's been super enjoyable and I've, I've learned a ton. I, I love that we have a shared leadership model in this because I get to gain so much from you and from Doug and, and at the same time. Um, Vice versa you know, from you, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's been so, great. Um, and you have a couple of your staff in, engaged in it. So, um, you know, what is, what, what's what been the draw for you? What has been sort of the learning uh, in this environment? Um, what, what made you want to say yes to this when you have a lot of things going on? You know, I love, love the local church, care for church leaders, care for the future of ministry in New England. And it just feels like you know, that vision of evergreen out of Jeremiah 17 of, you know, in the midst of when the heat comes, then there's drought, when there's all these forces that seem like are going to prevent flourishing uh, in someone's life. But if we can be like that tree planted by the stream of water, whose leaves are kind of evergreen, then we can bear fruits, you know, even in the most unfavorable of seasons. And, and I think that type of resilience, that type of evergreen leader is just so, so desperately needed. But also, you know, my heart for, for pastors is, you know, so many of us have been isolated. So many of us just been uh, drugged through the mud over, you know, COVID and politics and some of the, the racial divisions that is just, you know, polarized uh, so many churches and, and leaders. So there's just a sense that we just need a time for healing and friendship, which is one of the key pillars of this. But, uh, you know, I think you talked about it earlier. I think just the chance to not be, just be a leader, but to get to be a participant and the mutuality, the reciprocity that occurs when, you know, we're out hiking and hearing what other people are learning and, you know, what they're thinking about this really strengthens me. Uh, but I just think, yeah, I know for us to make an impact over the long haul in New England, there's just going to be a lot of us that need to kind of be here together decade after decade after decade. And so to be able to invest in the kind of friendships that could help us do ministry like that, you know, 
to help people then gain competencies in communication, you know, and spiritual formation to be the kind of leaders that could could flourish uh, and have a lot of the leadership stuff that you're bringing to the table is just seems. Why wouldn't I want to be a part of that? Why wouldn't anybody want to be a part of that? Especially at, uh, you know, I think the price we're able to offer to cover our costs, um, to, to offer that great environment. So it's been a real, real joy. And you know, the big thing I've tried to help leaders so far in the spiritual formation piece, we're guiding people through the, you know, 500 year old curriculum of Christ likeness developed by St. Ignatius of Loyola called the spiritual exercises. And at the core of the spiritual exercises begins with people learning to receive the love of God and not do anything for it. I think you, Andy, made a great statement uh, through this of, you know, we're saved by God's grace and then we spent the rest of our lives trying to earn it, you know, or ministry, you minister to earn it. And you know, Gordon MacDonald had a great question one time where he said, you know, what is it about our evangelical theology that leaves us feeling like we're never doing enough? And I think it's the wrong view of God. Uh, we have the wrong image of God. You know, God's created us in, our, in his image, and we've kind of returned the favor. We've made him in our own image. And so, so many of us are just struggle with contentment, struggle with joy, struggle to feel like loved by God unless we're accomplishing the amazing things. If we can first learn to receive the God, the love that God has for us because he loves us and wants to share life with us forever, from the overflow of that place of being loved, we can do ministry for the long haul. And I think it's way more fruitful because we're connected to the to the vine that much more. And apart from him, of course, you know, as John 15 says, we can do nothing. Yeah, the I mean the content that I feel like we've been able to walk through has been has been helpful, but to go back to that word communion, um, the investment in the communion with God, and then with the one another, mm-hmm. um, which is so hard for so many pastors and so many ministry leaders, and we that spiritual friendship piece I think has been sort of almost the framework yeah. that those other realities live inside of. God designed us that way. We, we preach that, but we don't always live that as, as pastors. And That's right. um, it's been, you know, having these guys have to conquer their first 4,000 foot mountain. Um, some did it easily. Others uh, are still telling the story and licking their wounds a little. And we're going to do that again in the spring, which was, was, is great. And um, it's yeah. great to have those experiences. Like you said, that protract that long period of time just to be together and build experiences together is, is so so key. Um, and um, one of the, the stories that uh, we'll kind of close with that you've shared um, about the White Mountains, which are right in our backyard here in, in New Hampshire. Um, and we get to take the guys up up one of the 4,000 foot mountains. What, what mountain did we climb again? I, I forget which we did too, right? Two peaks. Yeah. Yeah. We did uh, Mount Whiteface. Pisc- yeah. Whiteface and Pisconaway. Yeah. On the yes. southern kind of southernmost ridge and range there the sandwich range and and the whites yeah which was awesome yeah so uh share with us the story of the there's another ridge that has some great history that kind of would be a good kind of capstone for this conversation yeah one of the things that has been an outlet for me throughout the pandemic is is mountains you know climbing and hiking and so as you're climbing and you're hiking you start reading quite a bit about that and kind of nerding out on some of these you know, books. And one of the places that kind of intrigued me that I've read some of the history on is the Lincoln Woods uh, Trailhead. It's on, it's on uh, the Kankamangas Highway right outside of Lincoln. And if you start on that path, it's a three-mile you know, old train track that has railroad ties in there that while it's flat, it can be deceiving. You can fall on your face. And you're kind of curious, you know, how did this emerge? How did this happen? Well, kind of in the, you know, the late... Uh, 1800s, early 1900s, that whole area was was used for logging. I mean, the beautiful, protected White Mountain National Forest was just decimated uh, from all of the logging and uh, all the clear cutting that just occurred through there. And fortunately, some of our lawmakers around the time, you know, William Taft was was president and people even here in New Hampshire that were advocating, we need to save and preserve and conserve this area for recreation and for for life and for the wildness of this to be able to reemerge. So the Weeks Act was passed in 1912, which preserved 25,000 acres of what's called the uh, Pemigewasset Wilderness Area. So if you know you're looking, if you're on I-93 and looking east, you know the Franconia Ridge and the, the neighboring mountains. That all kind of comprises the the Pemi Wilderness and and as that law got passed, 
that then the next step that occurred was what they call the process of rewilding, rewilding. And that word rewild means to return to an to a more natural state. It's the undoing of domestication. And as I thought about this idea of rewilding and in the context of church, it felt like COVID and all the you know polarization of these last couple of divisive years kind of feels like the church is just left looking like it had just been clear cut, like just stumps and logs that have been just taken away. And it feels like, what if this was a moment for the church to be rewilded, that there was an undoing of that domestication that has perhaps caused the church to be far too consumeristic, far too corporate in its nature? And what if we could enable the church to return to a more, you know, natural acts kind of state? And I believe we have a unique opportunity for the rewilding of the church. And as the church, you know, as the leader goes, so goes the church. And that's a lot of what we're trying to build into Evergreen and Evergreen Way. Evergreen Leaders is a rewilding of pastors and ministry leaders that we would get back to the real heart of who Jesus has called us to be. And that starts by being transformed into his, you know, his likeness and as we dream about and pray about the rewilding of the church, I can only imagine what the next decades could look like. And it's crazy to go back and look at the pictures of, you know, pre, uh, you know, the, the, the Pemi wilderness before it was conserved to what it looks like today. And my hope and prayer is that one day this church that looks beat up, that looks like it's defeated, will flourish and and it's look rewilded uh, in a beautiful, compelling, kingdom-building way for God's greater glory. That's my hope and prayer. And uh, that's what I'm waking up every day trying to be a part of. I'm glad we can be a part of that together, man. Me too, Dave. I'm looking forward to that journey together. Uh, thanks for your friendship. Thanks for this conversation today. And um, where can people connect with you at a Crossway uh, Christian Church? Is your ministry hub? Is there any other places that people could find you hanging out. Yeah, I'm hanging out there a lot. I'm on Instagram. The White, Mount, the White Mountains, Dave I guess. Ripper. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of trails. That would be great. Uh, so, That's yeah. Good. Yeah, thanks, man. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Have a good one. Hey, blessings. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Evergreen Way podcast. On behalf of our entire team at Converge Northeast, it is a privilege to bring you these conversations to help you be a healthy leader for the long haul. We would love to connect with you. Find us on Instagram at Converge Northeast and send us a message. That's an easy way to connect with us. Or you can send me an email directly, Andy, at ConvergeNortheast.org. We'd love to know what you think of the podcast, ideas you might have, or even suggestions for potential guests in the future. Please remember to follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you would, do us the favor, leave us a review. Let us know what you think and help other people discover this resource. Until next time, this is Andy Needham with Converge Northeast. Thanks so much for tuning in.